SOAS Radio. Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio. I'm Fred. And I'm Almira. And welcome to Professor Playlist. For this series, we've lured SOAS academics out of their classes and into the studio to tell us more about themselves through five of their most loved tracks. In this episode, Almira is joined by Dr. Malaika Hijas, who walks us through her journey into the Malay manuscript tradition and what it means for her to teach Southeast Asia from afar. Let's have a listen to their conversation. Today in the studio, we have Malaika Hijas, lecturer in Southeast Asian Studies at SOAS. Hi, Malaika. Hi, Elmira. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very excited to be here. Great. Well, Malaika does many things with the Southeast Asian Department. There's um, the Malay Manuscript Tradition, Islam in Southeast Asia, Cultural Studies and Gender in Southeast Asia and the Malay world, and of course, modern literatures in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Yeah. But that's what it says on the website. You're That's here. more or less right, yes. Yeah. Why don't you tell me in a nutshell, what is it that you do? Could you describe yourself and uh, yeah, what do you do and specialize in? So I, my research specialty is the Malay manuscript tradition. So that's stuff written in the Malay language, written by hand, so before printing. So we're talking about up to the end of the 19th century. Um, but I teach, as, as you mentioned, all kinds of things, contemporary literature in English and in Malay and Indonesian and cultural studies of Southeast Asia and all kinds of other things, yeah. Well, the first question I always have for lecturers is, how did you get started and how did you get to be here today? So I want to kind of go back because your first track is... So my first track is Ayamata di Kuala Lumpur by Saloma. This means tears in Kuala Lumpur. And Saloma is this sort of classic icon of Malay cinema and music of the kind of 50s into the 60s. And Kuala Lumpur is my hometown, a very very unromantic place um, as uh, we were talking about earlier so the name of it is even fairly prosaic it's the means the muddy estuary but Saloma has managed to produce this gorgeous song um, about it so that's why I chose it we're gonna listen to it in a bit but maybe you could tell us how did you get to SOAS you know how did you start from a kid till now were your interests as a kid sort of related to what you do now or are they completely different I mean I was interested in writing and literature and I'm thinking I probably would never have picked this song when I was a kid right because it's the kind of music that my father listened to and I had no interest in it but so I, I did my first degree in literature I mean I'm from an English speaking family my father is Malay uh, I went to school in Malay language education system um, and I always thought I was going to be a writer in English but then so the idea of working on English literature didn't appeal to me at all I thought you know there's all kinds of other stuff out there and so when I did sort of my master's, I was doing Arabic. Finally, I came to SOAS to do classical Malay literature because it was the only place to do it. Let's give this track a listen. This is Air Mata di Kuala Lumpur by Saloma.
All right, so that was Airmata di Kuala Lumpur by Saloma. Let's talk a little bit about your research interests, because where you left off, you said that you were studying, was it classical Malay? Yeah, so I came to SOAS to, to do, you know, I thought, okay, I, w- I want to work on literature, and actually, <laughs> I know this language pretty well, uh, much better than I'm ever going to know Arabic, for instance. And there was one place to, to study it seriously, and I wasn't really interested in the modern literature. I wanted to look at all this stuff, partly because so few people had investigated you know, hundreds of years of a written tradition, but because it's not published, nobody reads it. And I was also interested in it because in Malaysia, this tradition is constructed in a particular way, a very ethno-nationalist, very Islamist sort of way. But if you actually read any of it, it's a lot, it doesn't really help that narrative very much, but it's been completely kind of co-opted into that. So I thought, okay, so let's actually read it and actually take it seriously. And what does it say? So that's what my project was and, and continues to be uh, some somewhat to the irritation of certain people, uh, which uh, is is only to the good. So what kind of texts were these? So these were literature texts. So I mean, Yeah, so the, so the texts that I, I did for my PhD, there were a series of um, sha'ir, which is a poetic form, very similar actually to the meter of the, the lyrics in that Saloma song, um, but they're really, really long and there's sort of narrative stories. And they were written, some of them by women of the royal court uh, of Penyangat, which is just south of Singapore, or certainly for sort of, or I argue for kind of domestic female audiences and they're these very funny narratives about women who disguise themselves as men and then go off and you know fight battles and stuff and do you have a favorite story in particular well i don't favorite but i mean the the problem with them also is that uh, certainly the colonial scholars who studied them before thought they were terribly aesthetically bad they're really repetitive the characterization is very thin and all that kind of stuff which is true but you're kind of looking for the wrong thing you know i like the uh, the one in particular, which actually is fairly well known. What is it called? Uh, City Zubaida. Sorry, City Zubaida. This one sort of takes the theme to the max because not only is the so the prince gets captured and his wife has to dress as a man to rescue him, but then also the antagonists are female. So there's seven princesses of China who actually imprison him. So like, there's no male protagonist in it at all, which is quite entertaining. We're going to talk more about how that led you to what you do now in a moment, but let Let's play your next track. So can you tell us what this one is about? So this is a super cheesy um, Malay rock song. Uh, and so if you know about Malaysia, this is still, this genre is, is still massively popular. It was a huge hit when I was a teenager. And again, it's not something that, you know, heavens, I wouldn't have listened to it. But it was huge. And it reminds me very precisely of certain things like sitting on the intercity buses and this kind of music blaring out of it or going to people's weddings and some cover band playing this um, and it's it's a lot of fun I think yeah we both agreed this is quite a Malay track it's very Malay so why don't you introduce it for us so what's the name and who's it by so this is Isabella by Search Isabella Come on. 
right, so that was Isabella by the Malaysian band Search. Yes. And the next track that you chose is very much related to what you did in Oxford. So between my, after my undergraduate degree, which is kind of in literature, but sort of a kind of Western complete sort of thing, then I thought, right, I'm, I don't know, I had this utterly overambitious plan. So when I was un- undergraduate, I'd done Sanskrit and I was like, okay, okay, so, you know, no, I mean, I've forgotten it entirely anyway. And I thought, I'm going to learn the other classical language of Southeast Asia. I'm going to learn Arabic. Uh, so I went off to Oxford to do that, um, which was a strange experience. And I have also subsequently forgotten all my Arabic. But it was around the time, I think, that Natasha Atlas was um, barely uh, on the scene. And, uh, you know, this whole Arabic pop music thing uh, kind of sustained me somewhat through lots of grammar and, uh, and, and learning, you know, another classical language in which I could not speak to anyone. So, um, yeah. So tell us more about this track or about Natasha Atlas. Why her? Well, I, I like this track. So she's a British Egyptian singer, I think. Um, and and was, it does all these kind of interesting things of sort of merging a more, if you like, Western sort of pop style with this kind of Arabic vocals. Of course, Arabic pop is huge. I also like this particular one because kind of riff on Edith Piaf. So we have a lot of things crashing together, which is something that I I like. Yeah. And why did you think it was important to learn Jawi? So basically you, you learned Arabic, right? In Oxford. Yeah. And then it was after that that you picked up Jawi. Yeah. So Jawi is, is basically Malay written in Arabic script. So in the course of learning Arabic, obviously you learn you know how to read, which I had been taught as a child, but because I just paid no attention in religious education classes, nor did anyone, I failed to learn it at that time. Um, so, I, but you know, so I finally learned how to read. And uh, yeah, so if you speak Malay and then you can read Arabic, well, then you basically know Jawi. So then I thought, okay, now I can do this. And there's all this stuff, all these manuscripts out there. Sure, no problem. Of course, it turned out to be a little more difficult. But uh, I remember turning up and my supervisor, you know, turning off for the PhD, and my supervisor saying, oh, right, okay, so you know the alphabet. And you can speak Malay, fine, go read these manuscripts. And that was about it. Uh, and I did. And so after a year of doing that, then I could read it. And I remember you telling me last term that if you can read Jawi, that's a quite useful skill because it opens your world up to a lot of different things. I was wondering where you could talk more about that. Like, yeah, you know, what does I mean, Jawi so open people, up to People you? are a bit like, oh, what's the point of that? I mean, but if you are interested in anything written before 1900 or even 1920, I mean, you really... So the newspapers were in Jawi and then there is a lot of material. So we, you know, talk a lot... That's so us about, you know, trying to bring in alternative voices and all of that. And so some situations, maybe there is no written material. And so that's another order of difficulty. Well, in the Malay case, there's a huge amount of written material. And so even the kind of, you know, 20th century newspaper stuff and then all of this manuscript stuff. So it's there, but it requires, you know, you need to know the alphabet. And it's not, it's not hard. It's very easy. You're making me want to learn it now. Yeah, you can take it. Um, you come back. <laughs> is there a particular manuscript or was something memorable that you've read in Jawi that you could share with us? Well, there's all kinds of weird things in the manuscripts, but one of the things I use when I'm teaching um, Jawi in the beginning um, or the first couple of weeks, you know, these things from the newspapers of even the 50s, and there are just these crazy things. There's a 
very funny, um, yeah, unintentionally funny, um, like a classified advert in paper from Singapore. And it looks like the setup for a sort of tragic P. Romley movie. In fact, it's like announcement. We are looking for singers and dancers to work in night in a nightclub in a hotel in Singapore. And you're like, oh, no, you know, um, but it was it's a real in a Malay language paper. We're looking for joget dancers to work in the orchestra and it's a, or to, to work, you know, with the orchestra in the hotel or something or other. And you just think, wow, this is such a, you know, it's like straight out of those films. It's really amazing. Was that something you read in Malaysia or Singapore or here? Here, here. because I got a stack of old newspapers from the 50s from Russell Jones, who retired from here about 30 years ago. He gave it to, well, he gave it to somebody else and it eventually came to me, this enormous box of yellowing newspapers from like the 1950s, which are still in my office. <laughs> and I, you know, just kind of was looking through it and there are all these just crazy things in it. So we're going to play Natasha Atlas's cover of Mon Ami La Rose. So that was Natasha Atlas with Monami La Rose. And we're back with Malaika in the studio. We had a really interesting discussion off air. And yeah, I wanted to ask you, growing up in KL in Malaysia, and then now teaching in London at SOAS, teaching Southeast Asian studies, what's it like to research and teach Southeast Asia from a distance? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting perspective that the distance gives you. I mean, I guess I'm very conscious that being here allows me to do things that if I were an academic in Malaysia, I would have 
a great deal of trouble saying or researching or, you know, even now maybe we're going to see some reform of the universities, but that hasn't really come through yet. And the kinds of topics, the material I work on would be okay, but the things that I'm saying about it would, are, are not uh, really acceptable in, in Malaysia. So I'm aware that, you know, being here and I can pursue the things that interest me, it's a position of privilege. Um, it's also a little bit weird because it's a totally marginal endeavor in the West, but then it has all this kind of political <laughs> valence back home. Yeah. You teach a lot of literature courses. Yeah. And obviously you have lots of knowledge in manuscript traditions in classical literature as well. Uh, what is it about the written word and about literature that appeals to you so much? I was wondering whether you could talk more about your art form or your, yeah. you know, that particular field of the written word. Yeah, that is a very good question. Um, and I don't think I have a very good answer. I mean, I guess I was just always interested. As a child, I read a huge amount of things just all the time. I was a little bit kind of lived in this world of books. Um, well, I, I think the idea, especially in the manuscript things of uh, somebody's sort of voice, right, uh, of these kind of traces um, of something, of subjectivity sort of preserved, you know, more, not that they're necessarily that legible, right? You have to do quite a lot of work to understand what it means. Um, but at least there's that kind of potential, which, and I think there is a kind of difference. You know, all this discussions that are going on about decolonizing the curriculum and stuff like that. And I think, okay, well, right. So if you take this class, you will read, if you have the language capacity, then you, you can read what they said about themselves to each other, right? I mean, not that it's necessarily you're going to like it or it's going to fit what we think, but, you know, it, it, this is kind of preservation of, of a certain kind of subjectivity. And, you know, so even the English literature class, literature written in English, so that's the, the most accessible stuff. But that is how people are representing themselves, which I think is, you know, always going to be interesting. Let's play the next track. So tell us what is this track and why did you choose it? So this is a track by a band called Tenari Wen, and I haven't chosen it for any good reason other than that I like it. And also my six-year-old son likes it very much. And I went to see them in concert years ago now, and they were amazing. So uh, yeah, that's why I chose it. All right. Do you remember the title it's by heart? Inidiwan Afrik Tandam. Ini diwan Nafarik tamdam Lagasistan, lagasistan
was Teen Everyone. We're down to our last track. But before we go there, since you are quite knowledgeable in lots of different literature in Southeast Asia, do you have any suggestions or recommendations of, of books and things? So one of the really actually nice things about uh, teaching the team talk courses is I get to sit in on my colleagues' lectures and discover all these things. So we just had the, a couple of weeks ago the lecture on sort of Vietnamese diaspora writing in English and uh, my, my colleague uh, Dana Healy gave a really interesting talk about it and then I thought, oh yeah, I need to read that novel by Viet Thanh Nguyen, The Sympathizer. So I've started of reading that, which is very good. Um, so I'd recommend that. And as for stuff that's already on my syllabus, from the other course, which is under Western Eyes, which is European writing about Southeast Asia, I mean, we have a bit of a problem with that syllabus because, you know, first we have to say, okay, well, this is racist and that is racist and this is, you know, kind of, yeah. But so one of the novels, though, which is actually a beautifully written novel, is um, uh, by a Dutch woman uh, about uh, Indonesia, and it's called 10,000 Things by a woman called Maria Der out. I mean, not that it's entirely unproblematic, but it's beautifully written and very evocative about um, Eastern Indonesia. So that's a kind of a, and it, it's very forgotten, but it's definitely worth a read. Cool. Thank you. So you mentioned decolonizing the curriculum just now, yeah. um, a while back. Could you talk a little bit more about like what that means to you uh, in the Southeast Asian department, perhaps? And how, how do you go about like decolonizing the curriculum? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting one because, you know, on the one hand, I was a bit like, but wait, all my primary material is written, or, or before that, under Western Eye Closet. <laughs> the point of it, in fact, we used to teach Pramodia in Indonesian, right? So I kind of felt that was quite decolonized. And the sad thing is that we don't teach it in Indonesian anymore because we don't have the students. So, okay, so I teach Pramodia in English, and I feel like that's a little bit less decolonized, to be perfectly honest. Although that doesn't quite mesh up with... The, I mean, there's, there's this kind of a paradox, is because the greatest institutional investment in Britain in learning these languages was, of course, during the colonial era. And as we exit that, quite rightly, but, uh, you know, that this idea about decolonization is gaining traction now, but actually it doesn't come with any commitment to study the languages. So that means the whole thing is artificially limited to the Anglophone, actually. And that's, yeah, that's unfortunate, but maybe that's the way things are at the moment. It would be great if part of the decolonizing thing were actually, you know, let's rethink the total dominance of English or other European languages, you know, but that requires a huge investment, purse of time and energy and all of that kind of stuff, which is very difficult. So one more question about it, since we're on the topic of it. So we all know that colonialism existed in many different forms across the world. So pertaining to the Malay world or Southeast Asia, right? What advice would you give to students or young people from this region, from the Malay world or from Southeast Asia to decolonize their minds? Mm. If you have any advice at all, because I just feel that uh, it is different in different cultural contexts. Yeah, well, I think, contexts. you know, the really interesting thing about the British Empire in the Malay states, of course, this is not what we, I mean, the big, big difference in the way this is treated in Malaysia and Singapore. Um, so, you know, when I grew up in the Mahathir era, the first Mahathir era, it was ostensibly, you know, it was all like, you know, the West is terrible and and we hate, everything is neocolonialism and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, okay. But what they never said was the extent to which the Malay elite was totally co-opted and had 
absolutely no problem with colonialism. Now it's obvious why they didn't say that, but you know, that was actually what happened. Um, uh, I mean, that was the case and we have never dealt with that. So the whole rhetoric of decolonization in Malaysia was a little, yeah. Well, they always had a lot of trouble, to be honest, because it didn't proceed in the way it proceeded in Indonesia and there was no violent like attempt to depose it as there was in Indonesia. The thing is the way in which our local institutions of power were co-opted and continued um, and collaborated, if you like, with colonialism. So it's not so simple as just we get rid of them and then restore the sultans to their glory. I mean, the sultans had a great, great time during the colonial era. So many things to think about in such a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Malaika. We have one last track and it is very unusual. So you chose Um, the track Not Evil from the Lego movie. movie Now, I am so intrigued. Why? Well, you know, I thought, well, what, what do I actually listen to now? Oh, I listen to the things that my kids want to listen to. So what they want to listen to is the Lego Movie 2 soundtrack on repeat. And this is the song that I find the most amusing, I guess, out of, out of them. I, I just really like the idea of an evil queen made out of Duplo. That's great. Is that sort of your alter ego that's yeah. coming out well, now? Yeah, well, then I'm thinking, you know, I, kind of, I think it kind of appeals to me, this sort of benevolent or malevolent dictator kind of thing. All right, watch out, Malika yeah. students. <laughs> I'm so nice to Well, we're going to leave you with this, Not Evil by Tiffany Haddish from The Lego Movie 2. Thank you so much, Malaika. Thank you. For popping by the studio. Thank you. Oh, no. Are we in a musical? Uh, Hello, friends. My name is Queen. Whatever I want to be. Don't worry. I'm totally not one of those evil queens you've read about in fairy tales or seen in the movies. And there's no reason at all to be suspicious of... I won't lie, it's actually very suspicious that you're leading with this. I'm so not a villain, I have zero evil plans. No ulterior motives, just wanna help where I can. I wanna shower you with gifts, cause I'm selfless and sweet. So there's no reason at all to be suspicious of Queen Whatever. Thanks for listening to episode four of Professor Playlist with Dr. Malaika Hejas on SOAS Radio. Stay tuned for the last episode of this season as we're joined by lecturer in African history, Dr. John Parker.